4: let's let's ask let's answer
3: da, 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 da. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Jane Koston, ProPublica reporter Dara Lind. We are doing Ask Weeds Anything. Uh, we, we've got a lot of great questions from you guys. Um, so let's uh, let's get right to it. Who's got a good question?
4: Um, I would like to start. And so Louis Rovegno asked, here's a tweet from Adam, Star- Adam, Star- Adam Star- is a reporter at The Atlantic. It is a remarkable and unparalleled Republican propaganda victory that so many mainstream political journalists conceive of the most conservative voters in the country as the uncontested protagonists of the American story regardless of electoral outcomes or political events. I wonder if you think it's true and why or why not. So I think that there are two separate pieces to this argument, and I actually want to go with Matt for one of those pieces because we just recorded another episode of this same podcast in which you talked about how in general democrats are attempting to win districts that are whether the people within them are conservative or not districts are more conservative right so I, could, could yeah de- i mean th- this more? is
3: this is part of it right it's like if you're thinking about politics right like the electorate is older and whiter and more conservative than the population. And then the districts themselves and the states are drawn to be whiter and more working class than the electorate. So there is like a just like a factually accurate sense in which the center of political gravity in America is well to the Right. There's a converse version of this, right? Like you can imagine a conservative complaining that if you watch mainstream entertainment in the United States and commercial advertising, it appears to be treating uh, a much more progressive group as the protagonist of the American story. And that's because, right, when you talk about brand marketing – right? City dwellers are more important than people in rural areas. Young people are more important than older people. And, you know, I I think the conventional wisdom in marketing is that people of color are tastemakers and that it's important to sort of reach them more so than white people. And you gain like leverage with your branding exercises. Which,
4: you know, there's this whole uh, kerfuffle going on now, uh, again, with Nike and Colin Kaepernick involving the Betsy Ross flag the historical origins of Betsy Ross. That's a whole separate thing. Sure. We could do in a different <laughs> podcast. Um, but, you know, with regard to that, and a lot of folks on the right responding like, ah, we're going to boycott Nike. Well, the last time this all happened, when Nike picked up Colin Kaepernick as kind of a spokesperson, their sales went up. Because... One, a lot of the people saying that they will never buy another Nike product again. One is dubious as to whether they or not they had purchased many Nike products in the first place because Nike's, you know, their brand strategy. One, it's centered around the world on very large cities. Exactly. You know they're thinking Hong Kong, London, New York, Los Angeles, and a couple of other places, um, you know, major centers of capital. You know, if you are a sneakerhead, you know that the Air Max 270s are themed around specific cities and city experiences. Nike's entire branding strategy is what do minorities and people of color with money want? Because we will give them whatever that is. And that that's how that works there.
3: Exactly. So, right. So what Adam says is correct within, like, the meaning like I think yeah. what he meant by what he said it. But I think like a larger perspective is that you see conversation. that. something I think about, you know, we've been talking about uh, school busing controversies from the 1970s. And that's a clear example, right? We're like on the politics, the anti-busing people won, right? And like, I mean, we'll see what happens now. But this is like a big victory of conservative politics. Huge public opinion victory, decisive wins in the court. It is unimaginable to me that there would be a Hollywood movie that like is about the heroic story of anti-busing activists, like it would play really, it would be really poorly received, right? Like, because that's not how pop culture operates. And it's a big sense of conservative complaint, right? That like there are these always, you know, stories about sort of – Civil rightsy wins over the years, and there are never stories in that like cast, uh, like conservatives or reactionaries as the heroes, even though in actual politics, like conservatives do win battles sometimes. Um, And so, I don't know, we just like we have a difference.
2: I mean, I think that there's another angle here, and that is that political journalists tend to think of political competition in terms of who are the voters that are going to decide this election Mm -hmm. and what do they want? But Mm -hmm. they do that with the massive asterisk that political journalists being people who are professionally interested in politics, they tend to discount people who are not reliable, who are are not going to turn out to vote every time. Like, that is seen as an insufficient commitment to democracy, whereas the people who are going to vote every time but either label themselves independent, don't always vote the same way or have recently changed their partisan affiliation, are all seen as truly decisive. Like, they're the ones who are weighing the options and are going to really turn the tide one way or the other. And especially with the turn of, you know— with. The turn of a certain block of white voters from the Democratic to the Republican Party, those voters are still seen as, in some way, gettable for the Democrats because people voted for Democrats in the recent past. And so they are seen as kind of the default pivotal voters in any given election, right. even before you can actually, I mean, way before you can do trends and see who turned out, who didn't turn out, because you know they're going to turn out and you know that they have not literally come, from the, you know, come out of the womb voting for the GOP.
4: Right. But I, I do think that that's something that I would, you know, if I had advice to political journalists, besides the people in this room. I think it's important to contemplate, you know, I th- we saw a lot of stories in 2015, 2016 from, you know, people interviewing blue-collar white voters who had this concept. There's a Mother Jones piece I always think about where someone brought up, well, you know, like, we were at the front of the line, and then all these people moved in front of us in the line. And I yeah, think this it, is building on Arlie Russell Hochschild's book, Strangers yes, in Their Own Land, which, exactly.
2: like- I say this as someone who was skeptical of it going in. It is a very good articulation of the ways that this worldview works out in everyday life.
4: Right, But I think, you know, I think correspondingly, it's important to have conversations about the supposed quote unquote line jumpers. And I think that that, you know, some of the most important reporting I saw right after the election was The New York Times went to Milwaukee and interviewed black voters who were like, we didn't vote because neither candidate was particularly inspiring. And... Uh, until we get a candidate who interests us, who either isn't Donald Trump or hasn't made comments about uh, super predators, you know, we're, we're not going to vote. Elections are just as much about who doesn't show up as who does. You know, there's a reason why Roy Moore is not Alabama senator, and it is a lot of it is because GOP voters just didn't go. And so mm-hmm. I think that in the you know, in looking ahead at 2020, thinking about the democratic debates, which, you know, there's been this whole back and forth about Republicans basically saying like, but where are these Democrats reaching out to me? Mm -hmm. And then people responding that if Democrats picked up voters who didn't, who voted in 2012, but dropped out in 2016, they would hypothetically never need to go after the supposed Obama to Trump voter, which I think there's, there are people who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. But there are more districts that experience that flip than there are individuals who did so. So I think it's it's important that you know when you are a political journalist you are also operating in this world. You know you are not absent of context. You are not operating in a in a vacuum. You are contributing to this context and it's important to recognize that.
3: But actually I want to get a little closer to like the the basic observation, right? Because I think I think there's actually a pattern that we see in a, in a lot of contexts which is that people tend to when you think about a group and then the group is somewhat diverse in its composition. People tend to associate that group with the most um, distinctively typical sort of members of it, right? Rather than with the the um, uh, mathematical average, right? So a lot of people, uh, there's there's surveys where people ask like how many democrats are gay uh, right yes, yes, and they come up with like huge numbers right because democrats are strongly seen as the party of lgbt people and the party of african-americans right like
2: if you assume that most gay people are democrats
3: well it's very easy to flip that and right and if you, if you put in a correlation but uh, bucket you would see that like being black or being gay is like a huge indicator of being a democrat That being said, it's still relatively rare for a Democrat to be gay simply because there are not many gay people, right, like in in the world. And the Democratic Party is like a big mass political party, right? And so by the same token, white Christianness, right, is the biggest block of American identity. And it's really, really the biggest block of the Republican Party, right? So there's this kind of slippage to be that like the – there's a greater congruence between who we think of as being the Republicans and who we think of as being the Americans than there is with Democrats, right? And like that's not right. You know, like Democrats have won the popular vote more often than they've lost it and in fact are probably closer to the the median American. But there's a kind of typicalness of – Republicans that I think presents a seductive illusion in terms of how do we think about these things, right? That like the most normative Americans are – white Christian Americans, and white Christians are very, very likely to be Republicans. Therefore, Republicans are like the real Americans, and Democrats are all these exceptions.
2: Matthew Larson asked, The Weeds uses empirical research like NBER white papers to inform policy. The replication crisis in psychology has shown that studies often fail to hold up when more research is done. Should we be wary of treating new studies as settled science and using them to make policy? I think the short answer to that is, yes, we absolutely should. As we a matter an of fact, about yeah, that. exactly. You should listen to the weeds episode on the replication crisis. Um, something that I think we do informally, but would probably, you know, in theory could do a better job of institutionalizing is doing a bit of a methodology check. You know, we don't tend to run studies that are just we surveyed a bunch of college students. Um, this is why Swedish administrative data is so useful because it abstracts it from an experimental context. Uh, this is why we do a lot of like natural experiments of cities that are on state lines, that kind of thing. There are ways that you can do things that lead to a higher likelihood of robust results than when you're than rather than kind of controlled laboratory setting. Uh, but I also think that like there's a reason that we're podcasters and not policymakers, and while we often for the sake of Argument assume that the correlation be or like causal chain or whatever being identified in a given study is true because that makes it more interesting to talk about, especially for people who haven't read the paper. That like you should not go forward and assume that this is one hundred percent gospel truth, especially if you are not looking at the white paper yourself and maybe coming to your own conclusions about its validity.
3: Well, so I I also want to say though, like I mean, to echo what Dara said, like. I think we try to avoid, not that we never do, but like not heavily relying on um, these experimental type studies that are at the center of the replication crisis, I think there's a specific area in which policymakers have gone too far in this, which is that there was a fad about 10, 15 years ago for um, behavioral economic studies as a major policy kind of driver, right? And so David Cameron's government in the UK set up like a behavioral something's unit. Um, Cass Sunstein like elevated to the top of Obama administration uh, wonkery on the basis of certain of his nudge and choice design work. It's obviously important to take like behavioral contexts into account when you are designing policies
2: but, but especially the- when you're designing like delivery systems like the ways in which I can think of policy actually working uh in that context are like the work done by some of the tech nerds at the CFPB and at 18F who are thinking a lot about the interface of human beings with policy and how do you make it most accessible
3: to humans. Right. But there was something attractive about the idea of being able to do policy uh, largely through light touch nudges. But for that to work, your evidence on the nudges would have to be really, really, really good. And the kinds of experiments that form the evidence base for that kind of stuff are just not that good, right? Whereas like when we do – we talk about like the empirical research on the impact of lead on people um, and its implications for policy. That's a different kind of – empirical research right that i think presents like much much heftier evidence uh, but it doesn't support as like happy-go-lucky research conclusions because like the upshot of it is well to take care of this problem we would have to spend like billions of dollars for many, many years, and it's not as like, well received by the political system. What people would love to hear is like, well, I did this neat little experiment and it shows that if we redesign the form, like we can like fix all these problems without costing anyone anything. Maybe that's true. i like sometimes it is true, but it, like that's where you have to have to check yourself.
2: All right, Matt, question time.
3: Okay. Okay. Here's a great one because I have no opinion on it. Mark Sivak uh, wants to know. I think really want want to know what you guys think. How do you figure out whos is and isn't isn't a conservative? Does is Trump a conservative because everyone at CPAC loves him and he's huge Republican support, or is he not a conservative because most of the National Review says he isn't? Is Ted Cruz a conservative? I, I mean, you see the the general thing, right? It's like like what 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 is a real is a conservative? Uh, like what quacks like a conservative, or is it what you know I would find in my my college class on Burke?
4: Perhaps that you need a Justice Potter for this to say that you you don't know what it is, but you know it when you see it. No, this is an actual item of some discussion, and I think that there. I think this is another time in which defining terms gets really important because it's the term itself that will get messy. So, is Trump a conservative? Because everyone at CPAC loves him and he has huge Republican support. I think actually kind of belies the point because being a Republican and being a conservative are not the same thing. Um, there are many conservative libertarians who think that that the combination of being a conservative and a libertarian, the conservatarians, so to speak, being a Republican is generally how conservatives have seen. The best way to bring conservatism into party politics, because the existence of a so-called conservative party, um, you know, if there were, if we were in a parliamentary system in which you had multiple political parties and we would just be like Germany and just strike grand bargains every two years over stuff, then there probably would be an actual conservative party. But since there isn't one, we have the Republican Party, and the Republican Party is su- basically where conservatives have gone, but it's not like they're super jazzed to be there. Imagine you're in a town where there are two bars, and then those two bars, you'd basically need to fit in pretty much, you know, Pat Buchanan, Alan Keyes, and the Koch brothers, and they're not all terribly happy to see each other there. So I think of conservatism as, in ideological terms, Um, it has to do with what you think government should do, and what you think the role of government should be in the both the individual lives of citizens and in kind of and how citizens interrelate with each other? And conservatism argues that any effort to move forward to, Increase that involvement even for the purpose of making life purportedly better is probably bad. You know, that's kind of the William F. Buckley quote about standing athwart history yelling, Stop. Conservatism is an argument to conserve, to hold back, to argue that, you know, doing more things is probably bad. Doing less things is probably good. Government is probably bad at whatever it's going to try to do, so there should be less government. However, you see that there are a lot of Republicans, even right now, having this entire argument about whether or not they should regulate social media companies that they're mad at based on an interpretation of a law that isn't... That is a incorrect interpretation. So you're seeing Republicans arguing like, ha ha, we can use the government for good. And when we do it, it's good. And the expansion of government into the, you know, into private business is good because we're doing it for the right reasons, which is a Republican priority, but not a conservative priority. And, you know, I would think. How Trump plays into this, I think, gets really complicated because I think that, you know, there were a host of people who said, you know, uh, National Review had an against Donald Trump issue. There are a host of people who said, but Donald Trump's not a conservative. And to quote the movie The Fugitive, a bunch of people said... I don't care, because it turns out I had a conversation uh, with Matthew Continetti in an episode of The Ezra Klein Show, and Matthew is uh, at the Washington Free Beacon and is a long-running conservative writer and thinker, and he basically said that a lot of people, even people who are conservatives, can't really agree on what it is. You know, you see, that's why you see so much conservative infighting about the very definition of the term. Or you see a lot of people who are very angry at neoconservatives and paleoconservatives and the different branches of conservatism that all hate each other. And generally, we're bound together by the fight against communism. And now that that's no longer so much of an issue, which is why people keep bringing up socialism a lot, because it helps bind everyone together. You know, they, they're fighting because conservatism is you get into kind of a no true scotsman kind of discussion in which no one's really a conservative because you know no one's really really willing to end the fed and return to like a a concept of the gold standard but i think that you know being a republican is not what makes you conservative but a lot of conservatives aren't really sure what makes you a conservative either I mean, I think that that
2: kind of slipperiness is exactly why it seems to me less useful to talk about who is and isn't a conservative from an ideological perspective than to think of a conservative political and social movement.
4: Yes. Movement conservatism is a separate, yeah, it's a separate concept. But I think it's a more useful
2: way to think about it because, like, the outlines of that are much less fuzzy and you don't have to be put in the position of, like, Trying to argue to someone who may not believe that you are a member of X group that like, you know, there's a question of like, are you policing from inside the tent or outside the tent? Whatever. If you think about it as a social movement, you get around a lot of those questions. And from the perspective of a social movement, like the grassroots power of the conservative movement has always been religiously inclined, racially conservative white people since the 1980s if you if there is to be a conservatism that isn't just a set of Washington institutions the fiscal conservative aspect as big a deal as that was in you know Washington politics from the 1980s through the mid-20-teens was never kind of the motivating factor no. for the
4: movement. Which is and why so you'll notice a model, lot, a lot, few people talking about de- the deficit, right, for example. Right. Like, we, we, you know, there was a, an entire political movement, the Tea Party, that's purported aims were about government overspending. And now the Tea Party has shifted. You know, I talked to some folks who were like, yeah, we're giant Trump supporters and Trump loves debt. So right. here and we like are the, now.
2: Like in particular, Trump Trump may not have been a conservative when he started running for president in terms of he may not have been aligned with yeah. that movement. But like now, because A, of the federal judiciary and B, Trump's increasing use of religious, explicitly religious language and having religious leaders like Jerry Falwell cover him, he's absolutely a part of the conservative movement.
3: I would say, you know, one of the asymmetries of this is that. For, I don't know, sociological reasons, the structure of rhetoric, it's essentially inconceivable that a major Republican Party politician would identify themselves as anything other than a conservative. So like as Jane was saying, there's a lot of infighting among conservatives, but there's also on a labeling level – This, like, weird kind of homogeneity because it then breaks down into these, like, little jargon terms, paleo-neo, that, like, no normal person knows. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, uh, I'm not
4: normal. That's that's neither here nor there. Whereas, like, on the Democrats,
3: right, like, it's very typical – It's like Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist and like none of the other people on the stage do call themselves that. I think they would mostly would probably say yes to being called progressive. Uh, Probably some of them would say yes to being called liberal. Some of them would describe themselves as moderates. And it's not actually that like the Democrats are more diverse than the Republicans, but the like labeling dynamics are different. So Democrats – Socialists do get very hung up on, like, who is a real socialist. But, like, the general universe of left-wing Democrats in a weird way doesn't because they, like – they have this taste for, like, splittering. And, like, politicians who are actually the same will come up with, like, hugely different rhetorical frames to uh, define themselves because everyone has gone to graduate school and and they, like, want to be really fussy about –
2: that is not an accurate description of the Democratic base. In fact, no, not the base. the The people, oh, the
3: leaders, okay. you know yeah. what I mean, of the Democratic Party are like super marinated in like weird academic stuff.
4: I, I also like people think, have like
3: these like bitter arguments about Louis Brandeis, and like who even remembers who that is?
4: Uh, an icon, a Jewish American <laughs> icon, and the first yeah, Jewish member good for of the of Jews. The Supreme good Lord. Court. Wow, Matt, how dare you. To all brave graduates of Brandeis University, please.
3: And even, continue. I guess,
2: to less brave graduates of Brandeis University. Anyway, I like, remember dudes, when I learned that like Car-
3: literally five pages. High School is named after it. Well, anyway, <laughs> let's take a break.
1: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's
0: N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot wise.com.
2: I'm going to ask Matt a question okay. from Daniel Smith. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Superblocks a la Barcelona for the Upper West Side, where most east-west traffic is local traffic already. Great plan, amazing plan, or shut up and upzone the Upper West Side already?
3: Uh, Yes, Uh, it, it it should be it. Uh up sound horrifically. Um if you actually if you think about New York, I I you read sometimes that like New York's uh transportation infrastructure is like overtaxed or something. And there are parts of it that are, but like if you look at the Upper West Side where there's two different subway trunk lines, um, there's quite a bit of excess capacity there and a lot of cute brownstones that will cost like a billion dollars and could be apartment buildings in which like each apartment would cost like a million dollars. Um many more people could live there would not require extra infrastructure investment the extra ridership and tax base would let them do improvements where they are needed um i i don't know uh david roberts's thing about the super in barcelona it's super interesting uh but frankly i find that kind of like fussy urbanism less interesting than like crude uh, build stuff everywhere Ooh, thomas scahill wants to know would it be possible for a news organization to simply ignore everything donald trump says
2: no The answer to that is no. Um, Some data points include if you were a trans person trying to enlist in the U.S. military, you would be in for an unpleasant surprise. Uh, We were about to have some like massive, massive tariffs on all goods from Mexico before it got averted at the last minute. And I don't think you could really plausibly argue that if people hadn't been paying attention to them, Donald Trump would have been less likely to do them. Like the fact of the matter is that the president does have a lot of decision making power. And so you can't responsibly report on public policy without paying attention to what the president says.
3: Agree.
4: However, I, I would also note that I think it is interesting to observe how Trump tweets are treated by the rest of the administration. Um, there have been a couple of arguments in court with regard to whether or not Trump tweeting something means that it is a statement by the president. And I think that is fascinating. But no, I, you know, I, I, I once uh, ascribed to the theory that what if you just went an entire day without thinking about what the president of the United States was saying on the internet, but it it turns out that what the president of the United States says on the internet has a lot of impact on the lived experiences of millions of people. There's a, a question from Rob Wittenberg for Matt. You overlapped with Pete Buttigieg while going to college near Boston. Mm. You've told us your Jared Kushner story. Do you have any memories of Pete Buttigieg you can share from when you were at college?
3: Sure. Uh, So Jared and I were in the same class and in the same dorm. uh, So I knew him quite a bit better than than Mayor Pete. Uh, Mayor Pete was a year below me, and he was heavily involved with the Institute of Politics, which I was slightly involved with. So I I knew him a little bit then. I don't have any, like, amazing uh, Pete Buttigieg stories. I think we got pizza with uh, HHS Secretary Tommy Thompson uh, at one point. Um, and as I recall, I tried to ask Tommy Thompson how he felt about the fact that he was obviously more qualified to be president than the actual president. And Pete kind of like gave me a dirty look like I, like I shouldn't be it.
2: The president at the time being George, George W. Bush. Bush just that just I, be that I shouldn't be
3: a jerk to the guests. Um. Nathan Robinson's, like, Pete Buttigieg takedown, uh, I thought went too far as things Nathan Robinson writes tend to. Um, But something did strike me, right, is that he writes about something uh, Buttigieg recounts in his memoir, which is like walking past – the student occupation of the university administrative buildings when we were um, trying to fight for higher wages for the cafeteria and janitorial staff. And he like has some thoughts about it. And I didn't know Pete from that. Right. He was not involved with the progressive student labor movement, which operated both before my time and after ongoing basis to, you know, help uh, get unionization for the technical and clerical workers, uh, try to source the Harvard branded apparel for more ethical factories. Like we did a lot of stuff. Right. He was very and it's not that he wasn't a political person. He was the student advisory chair of the Institute of Politics, but he was not involved in the main progressive activism that was happening on campus at the time he was there. I wouldn't, like, draw huge sweeping conclusions about a person on that basis, but it, it tells me something about
4: it. So I think I, I would like to take the next question, which comes from Trevor Austin, touching on jeans, me, writing on the Sourabh, uh, on the David French, Sourabh Amari, debate and Matt's interest in big five personality metrics. What are the long to medium term prospects for a political movement in this country that appeals to conservative moral sentiments while accepting some lost culture war battles around race and homosexuality? It really does seem that if you had a center-right party that thought interracial marriage and gay marriage were good and Social Security should be left alone so so long as they could pound the table about hookup culture, church attendance, and the damned kids today not picking up their pants, they would win every election by 30 points. It wouldn't be my party, but I don't see how my misfit band of nonconformists would ever beat them. So the, the issue here is we kind of, sort of, ish, have that, uh-huh. and I'll, I'll I'll be more specific. Um, in 2016, the Republican platform was still opposed to same-sex marriage, but you are seeing a number of people on the right who have decided that they are libertarian on the issue of same-sex marriage. Uh-huh. What they're very concerned now is about. Um, religious freedom carve-outs, we saw the debate over the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Indi- in the Indiana when Mike Pence was governor there, and you're seeing, you know, Masterpiece Cake Shock, you're seeing basically kind of the trickle-down effects of, you know, what marriage equality means in a more broad sense and how people whose religious views are opposed to marriage equality or being a part of a marriage that they did not agree with, you know, we're seeing that. And I think interracial marriage, I think that's generally been hashed out, I hope. God, I hope. I think that there is a sense that though you know, and you're seeing specifically a lot of gay Republicans, notably there, you know, there are a couple of trans people who go to CPAC each year, but that they're not really, for many reasons, included in this kind of debate. But you're seeing a lot of a lot of folks on the right or think of themselves as being on the right, basically are you making this argument that You know, gay marriage, even if it's not good, and I think that's a separate argument. um, What, but you know, the existence of gay marriage is something that perhaps the state shouldn't get involved in. The state shouldn't have been involved in marriage at all. You know, which again, not an argument people were making before Obergefell, but you know, whatever. However, that does kind of exist. You know, you do see Republicans making arguments about saving Social Security or ensuring that Medicare payments remain. You know, a potential. The issue is that one, a lot of the people within the part, you know, within the Republican Party, aren't thrilled with this kind of messaging. You, you're seeing uh, a lot of backlash against the so-called Chamber of Commerce conservatives. Um, this argument that you know what what were you doing? fighting? You know, you're no longer fighting for the soul of America. You've just given in to all of these abominations, so to speak. And the other thing is that it's difficult. If you are a center-right party to kind of give up the ghost on some culture issues, but not give up on all culture issues. So I think that you just wind up picking and choosing on culture issues in a way that is difficult even for people within within your cohort. Because, you know, you'll hear even gay Republicans essentially arguing that, you know, a ban on trans people serving right. in the military is good. But, a, you know, don't ask, don't tell was bad because— Reasons. And I'm sure they have them. So my answer to this is that, you know, we kind of do have a center right party that is fine with interracial marriage and is largely argued that marriage equality is a you know a lost cause. I hate using that term. And you know, that social security should be, quote left alone in some senses. But I think that there are a lot of people who think that, you know, if there were a version of the Republican Party that were not this Republican Party, it would be a better or different Republican Party. The issue is we've had a lot of different versions of the same Republican Party. And, you know, how conservatives within it react to those changes has generally been by attempting to bring it back towards the right on culture issues.
2: As long as we're bogarting questions, I'm going to bogart a question that actually inspired me to do a little bit of research, which is unusual for Weeds AMA episodes. Some have reported that law enforcement revenues are substantially tied to marijuana-related asset forfeitures. Is this true? And what are the base the barriers to marijuana reform? So in looking yeah, this it up, it, it not really. Like a lot <laughs> of so but it's not true in an interesting way. Um a lot of asset forfeitures are are tied to federal uh, they are tied to the Federal Asset Forfeiture Fund at this point uh, because states have put various restrictions on the use of asset forfeiture for, A, on asset forfeiture, period, without actually convicting someone of a crime, and B, what those funds can be used for, and the federal government has kind of provided a uh, convenient loophole With that and saying, well, as long as you're doing it in joint federal state operations, you can just give it to the federal government and we'll give you some of that money back. So you could get part of it as opposed to getting none of it. In federal data, at least as of like 2016, uh, before the federal government undid and then redid some changes to asset forfeiture under Obama and then Trump – Drug-related forfeitures, and they didn't break this down by category of drugs, but drug-related forfeitures made up like 77% of all acts of seizure, but they only made up like 25% of the amount of cash that got seized, right? So it was a lot of small-dollar seizures as opposed to the majority of like 2007 to 2016 seizures by... volume were a few really big financial crimes. Like the feds got a lot of money from Bernie when they seized the assets of Bernie Madoff Mm -hmm. prior to prosecuting him. So it's not necessarily about like the wheels on which the federal and state law enforcement operations run are greased with drug money. It's much more about kind of power, like any any prosecutorial tool on the margins that people try to target and you know whether that's cash bail whether it's asset forfeiture whether it's mandatory minimums What you hear from prosecutors defending the status quo is we need that as a tool, right? It's Mm -hmm. not that they actually believe that every single person who has committed X crime deserves 10 years in jail. It's that they want to be able to threaten anyone who they could charge with that crime with 10 years in jail in order to get them to plead out to a lesser thing. Or they want to be able to threaten with asset forfeiture in order to, you know, get – To get the result that they want. And so taking any tools out of that toolbox, no matter how often the tool is used, is going to reduce the power that prosecutors have in that
3: interaction. All right. So Scott Kim, he that was a, a Scott Kim question. Yes, he has an annoying multi-part, four-part question. Yeah, and unfortunately, but like, too, but it's, many of them are good they're questions. They're rich with good questions. Yeah. So I, I want to keep going with it. So if you're a Republican and interested in working for Vox, should you even bother? My answer is no, because Vox does journalism and you should try to get into another line of work. But I wonder if Jane or Dara have should, serious answers. Oh,
2: my God. Yes, Matt, please do. Please because do. Because Vox does journalism and, like, it's actually— Not because you're
3: a Republican. And to be clear, just because journalism is a bad line of work. Oh, like yeah. You, no, I mean, if like, you want to have sure. a rich and fulfilling life, uh, you know. Yeah,
2: no, that's definitely uh, that is. But if you decide against that, if, but if like, you've right, decided like, to, like, you, like,
4: give up your life to, you know, if you want to throw to find, your life away, trying to find events with free food um, and you're a conservative Republican or libertarian, you should absolutely ad- try and apply to work for Vox.com. Because, I, th- you know, I think that that is useful. I think that, you know, for instance, one of the things I really enjoy here is the plurality of viewpoints. And I think you see that most obviously in how we cover gun issues or you know, how we talk about conservatism or GOP more broadly. Even the kinds of people that we write about or the, ki- the ways in which we write because we are each different people at thevoxes.com. And so I I think that if you are interested in working at thevox.com and you are a Republican or conservative or a libertarian or paleocon or monarchist, then please welcome, especially if you're a monarchist, because I have a lot of questions for you.
2: Yeah. I mean, speaking purely historically, uh, as somebody who obviously no longer works at Vox, quote unquote, uh, but is, you know, like knows Vox 2014 through 2019. Something that I think is underappreciated is the extent to which very, very early in Vox's life as a website, an active effort was made to recruit some high-profile conservatives so that the site would not be seen as center-left. But because Ezra's and Matt's brand in particular were so strong, it was hard even at that very, very early date to get anyone to jump onto what they already saw as a center-left site. And so there's this kind of emergent phenomenon in which rather than anybody like I was never sat down in a meeting and told, look, you are insufficiently adhering to the party line from one side or another. It's much more a question of who is already applying to work at Vox being people who think they agree with a party line that isn't actually being set down. So yeah, the best way to stop places from becoming like ideologically siloed is to apply to work there.
4: Agreed. Part of a lot of what I do is attempting to... Talk, you know, as I told Ezra that occasionally when I'm talking about infighting in among conservatives, it is like talking about, you know, a battle going on at a high school you do not go to. But mm-hmm. if it is a high school you go to, then your voice should be hear- heard and you should be a part of the mix here at Vox.com, especially as we wind up to 2020, because, you know, I think that that's important to have people who have different understandings of these specific issues that are being debated upon.
2: Uh, as long as we're navel gazing, Hal Getz asks, as workers who just ratified their first contract, congrats. I guess this is only congrats for Jane and Matt now, because I'm no longer a member of the Writers Guild of America, tier, what advice would you give workers in white-collar fields engaged in union organizing or contract negotiations? And I just literally having said that I'm no longer a member of the union, I'm gonna like come up say with a quick response to that, like, I don't think that the white collar. I think Obviously, in the grand labor history of America, the distinction between white-collar and blue-collar matters a lot. In the context of 2019 labor organizing, I don't see a lot of people taking the stance that, oh, if you were working in a factory, it would be legitimate for you to unionize. But because you work at a computer, you are not. Like, white-collar labor is as caught up as anything else in ten the tendency toward precarity, toward permalancing, toward contracting, the things that make employment risky in 2019 are not uh, specific to wage labor. And so like leaning into those, which really do affect large swaths of if not all of the white collar workforce, the like fear of replaceability that leads workers to feel that they need to act collectively because individually they could easily be like kicked out and put in, you know, like have somebody else put in uh, are as true. And leaning into that in a public way makes a lot of sense because that is a common experience that a lot of people can relate to.
4: Exactly. And I think that something that was interesting for me is, you know, I come from a Long line of union folks, uh, you know, but you know, my dad's union organizing took place at you know in the library system in Ohio in the mid 1990s as Ohio's library system was being decimated by budget cuts. And so I think that you know the so-called like the white collar blue collar difference is not as relevant and hasn't been for a while. And so I think that for other people who are interested in this type of unionizing, I think go for it.
3: The only thing I would say. Uh... Taking note of, of what both Dara and Jane just said is that in the real world, people seem to unionize in response to a sense that the direction their industry is taking is bad, yes. right? Precarity is something. Like, Dara mentioned a lot. Jane talked about the decimation of the Ohio public library system. Um, and that's great. But like a pitch I do want to make to um, rather than like white collar fields, but let's take it as like things are going really well. Let's say you are making a high salary because workers in your field are in incredibly high demand and you are really well treated by your employer and you are constantly fielding job offers from other employers in similar fields because your work is in such high demand and you are treated so well by your bosses and you have no complaints about them, because if you were in the slightest way disturbed by their behavior, you would just flip to another employer that would be even more utopian, you should be unionizing 10 times as much as people in a decimated public library system. Because what that means is that there is a surplus available in your industry and that you as an individual are capturing a lot because your labor is valuable. But collectively, you and your coworkers could be capturing so, so, so much more, right? And in a way, you can say like, well, what difference does it make? Like, right? Like if, if like rich, well compensated tech workers had unions and were even more well compensated, like what difference would that make? But I think it would make an enormous difference to American society because there is like a structural imbalance between labor and capital in like the world right and when lowly internet scribblers band together and form unions like we capture something right but it's honestly like limited like right. what we can actually get right whereas people from like big profitable companies where the workers are treated very well they can get a lot right and that actually shifts the like whole thing of like when there is a white house meeting and the subject of the meeting is technology. Right now who comes around the table is the CEOs of the companies, right? Because the workforces of those companies do not have organized representation. They literally lack a seat at the table, right? And they would have that seat because they can get so much because their industry is doing well and there's a lot out there. So like I would really encourage people who don't have like an atmosphere of grievance and negativity to think harder about this kind of thing.
4: So this is actually a good follow-up question, because I think that this gets at something that I I talk about a lot, and it, it's a complicated issue for me personally, and I'd be interested to see what other people think. So Jonathan Morgan asks, a question for all the hosts. Should governments allow police, border patrol, corrections officers, et cetera, to unionize? Are these unions a net positive for society? I, do, I think the second question is a separate one, because... Can't Should people do things, and is the doing of the thing good, are two separate things. Well, should should people be
3: allowed to, to do, do a thing? Right. Yes. Right. Exactly. Like, I, I think pretty clearly they, to to me, they are not a net positive for society because I disagree with the people in those fields about important questions of public policy. But on a second order sense, like yes, it is completely appropriate that police officers, border patrol officers, corrections officers, etc should have the same ability to have some kind of collective voice as anybody else. Like it it wouldn't make sense as like a rule set to be like only people in occupational categories whose politics I (laughs) tend to agree with should be able to have. I mean, it's like saying like, should police officers be allowed to vote? Like, yes, like, of course they should. Like, I I just disagree with their political opinions.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that where public safety unions tend to come under particular scrutiny is where instead of expressing grievances directly at management, they're expressing grievances toward the people they are interacting with on a day to day basis who tend to be on the shorter, you know, who they tend to have a an advantage over in the power dynamic. Uh, and so it can be easy to look at that and go, like, that's not what unionization is for. It's not for you guys to, like, say you should be able to do whatever you want. That said, though, I think, as Matt said, the root of that is a concern that the union is being impermissibly ideological. And it's really not easy to tell where issues of, like, Border Patrol morale stop being union concerns and start being ideological concerns, for example. And if you're going to say unions should only be allowed to, you know, use the bully pulpit or collective bargaining on pure bread and butter, non-ideological, non-moral issues, that has an implication for, like, the conventional labor movement as we understand it, too, right? right? Like, if we're going to say the SEIU is supposed to be doing only bread and butter labor negotiations, that takes—that, like, knocks out a substantial stool of the Democratic GOTV operation.
4: Right. I I think that, again— Yes, governments should permit all of these groups to unionize, even if some of those unions then have views that we
3: don't like. Casey Adams wants us to talk about the good things Trump has done. Um, he's bad, but maybe he's done some good things. So, I used
2: to hear some good things about Scott Gottlieb, but there is no longer
3: Scott Gottlieb. So He did do some good things, I've heard. Um, this was the FDA director. Uh, he did some good changes to drug approvals. Yes. Um, uh, Donald Trump... I would say not relative to how I would run foreign policy, but relative to how a baseline Republican would run foreign policy, I think has sort of kept us out of war in a (laughs) constructive way. I mean, we'll see how long that holds up because he constantly is like on the verge of us having a war with Iran. But if you pay attention to like the micro dynamics of that situation, right? It is the generic republicanness that is pushing us that way. And to the extent that Donald Trump is like personally intervening in the situation, it's to swim against the tide, um, sometimes with the assistance of Tucker Carlson. And like, I do not think that... Nothing about that is like a good way to run the government. Like you shouldn't both have John Bolton be your national security advisor and have avoiding wars be one of the things podcast hosts are saying you did well. But at the end of the day, I think that like there has been less war than there would have been if Jeb Bush was president. Um and that that and that hopefully a new generation of people who understand more about public administration and stuff like that, just like come into the Republican Party to try to take these ideas and give them a little bit more shape and form.
4: Something else, I mean, I, I'm aware that this is like, I uh, is there such thing as a backhanded insult? Um, yes. Because I think that something that has been, you know, if you're libertarian leaning, something that has been... helpful about the Trump administration is how it has caused people who are more left-leaning to realize that local politics matters and that voting in local elections matters and that who represents you on city council or as your state representative perhaps should be more important in the day-to-day in and out of your life than the president of the United States. Um, And so, you know, all three cheers for federalism, um and especially I think that there's been a lot of talk you're seeing from Democrats and the left about um executive overreach and kind of the size of the federal government arguments that were not necessarily being made pre trump, which you know that that that's good some you know in in a way, yeah, I mean, could... I feel like a lot of these bank shot arguments,
2: and like with the massive caveat that I am you know, I are a real reporter uh, and try and like not, you know, tr- trying really hard not to be like making value judgments in public because that's not my job. Right. Um, that I think a lot of the bank shot arguments about like, well, the rise of Trump as a political phenomenon has called attention to X, Y and Z things or has real public opinion in X, Y and Z ways. I would think it's going to make more sense to hold off on making assessments about that until it's no longer Donald Trump in office. Because I think we saw with the uh, rise and fall of the anti-war movement in the first decade of the 21st century that like if you it's very easy to identify things that are caused by the out party being upset about things the in party is doing and identify them as permanent changes in like awareness or opinion right and then when the out parties and in parties flip they lose all salience like you were saying earlier about the debt ceiling jane or like you know like obama with foreign policy and wars that they're just it's not necessarily a thing that people are adopting as As core to their identity, it's they're beating the party with whatever club they have at hand. Exactly. Uh, So speaking of Donald Trump, Eric Ranta asks, could you all briefly entertain the Trump nightmare scenario where he loses the election but doesn't leave office? Does the Secret Service physically drag him out? How does he actually get removed from the building?
4: So I think that there are lots of versions of Trump in multiple universes and occasionally we encounter a version of trump in which he like would refuse to leave office and just camps out in the oval office and has to be carried out by secret service but i feel as if that is a version of trump it's kind of the louise mensch version of trump in which you are an ultimate supervillain with a fluffy white cat named mr biggles and everything is you know a act of pure unadulterated evil or spite when based on what we know about donald trump the actual human being who currently occupies the white house his reaction to losing would likely be to leave um and then complain about it a lot on the internet and right. so i think that there i think that that's one of the challenges is that you are dealing donald trump used this about himself to great effect in 2016 which is that people could project upon him a lot of different things that had nothing to do with anything he actually said so you know, you people made the argument that he was a dove based on something or that you know he was a you know the alt-right argued like ah yes he supports us based on kind of his how, his interactions or his refusal to vow certain people, where you, know, you saw some LGBT Republicans saying, like, he's the most pro-LGBT president ever because he carried a flag on the stage. There's something about Trump that permits people to project upon him either their greatest desires or their biggest fears. And I think that this question points to the latter of, you know, yes, there is a, in the multiverse, there is a version of Donald Trump that is, Petulant enough to like need to be wrestled out of office. I just don't think that this is that version of Donald Trump. But
3: I would suggest to take this like a little bit literally. Like, yes, Yes. if Donald Trump refused to leave the Oval Office, like what would happen is that the Secret Service would drag him out of there. Because that's what would happen, he's also not going to do it. Right. Because he would obviously be futile. But this is important. If the only security agency in the United States of America was. ICE enforcement and removal operations. Then you could imagine a scenario in which Donald Trump in some close election loss tries to convince people that it was all due to fraudulent illegal immigrants voting and relies on like his boys with guns and badges to keep him in power or something. I mean, I'm, I'm not I feel saying like that's at not... that
2: point so attenuated that, like, in a world where ICRO is the only law enforcement agency, it's probably a more ideologically diverse law sure, enforcement right, right, agency. Right, right, right.
3: But, but I mean, I'm just saying, like, the right, like actual scenarios... scenario
2: you're thinking of is the case in which there is in in which Donald Trump can actually get a mass of people who aren't Donald Trump to physically assist him. Right. And that's not the world in which we live. Exactly, and
3: and nobody. Nobody is bringing a question like that to the table, right? Like, is the military going to mutiny? And if anything, the opposite, right? Like, we have by and large seen uh, agents of the state try to move slowly in response to impetuous Trump requests uh, because there is, I think, a general sense that Trump is kind of impetuous and you should probably slow walk in response to things he he says. I mean, which is good. That is a, a an aspect of the American institutional order that is holding up, like, pretty well.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, I understand that it's very, very, that at a certain point, this is kind of an article of, of if not faith, then, like, it's not something that three people on a podcast are going to change your mind about, right? Like, if you genuinely believe that there is nothing Donald Trump will not do, then nothing we say is going to change your mind. Sure. But... If you're not totally committed to that, then I think you need to update your priors post-2018 because there really was a lot of like Trump and Republicans won't acknowledge an election loss in 2018. They'll blame voter fraud. They'll blame blah, 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 blah. It turns out that Donald Trump was actually much less interested as much as he had tried to make the election about him in its closing days, was much less interested in relitigating the election after it was over than in making sure that everyone knew it wasn't his fault. So I have a question for Matt about Central American immigration, which is amazing. Uh, Mary G. asks, because of the news that the drop in coffee prices is driving Central American immigration to the U.S., could you guys dive into what kind of U.S. assistance actually makes a difference or makes the most difference? Anything from J-PAL or the Evidence Action RCTs? I have no idea what those things mean, so I'm just going to have you explain all of it. Okay,
3: so I looked into them, the, the Joint Poverty Action Lab uh, and the uh, Evidence Action. These are groups that they they try to do really high-quality studies on policy interventions. Um, they, they mostly study Africa and, and to an extent South Asia um, because the Central American countries, though they're poor, they're not actually like the, the poorest places. Uh, there, were, there are a couple programs uh, that j identified that use cognitive behavioral therapy to try to reduce um, you know, sort of violence, gang membership, things like that, that have a decent track record, you know, would that like fix the problem in Guatemala? I mean, I think pretty clearly no, right? The scale of social chaos there is quite large. But it is to say that if you were to approach this question in a less hysterical way, right, to simply say, look, there is a large outflow of people from the Northern Triangle of Central America, and we are sympathetic to the plight of those people. However, we also recognize that to the extent that our treatment of them uh, is generous, that further increases incentives to flee, which to some extent further destabilizes the situation at home, and ultimately we don't want the entire population of Central America trying to relocate to the United States. So what are we going to do about it? Right. There are some programs that it suggests will help with the crime on the sort of bottom-up level. Uh, We have, um, as I I talked about in my my interview with Adriana Beltran, we had some programs that seemed to be working on the corruption front. You could also make it a priority in our trade policy, right? The classic U.S. trade policy negotiation is that we treat agriculture as our export sector and so that we will give you access to the American market for your textiles if you give us access for our agricultural exports, Um, which is – I don't know. It's a mixed bag as an idea, but you could ask yourself, is the thing Americans most care about with regard to Guatemala and Honduras, how much cornmeal we sell to them? Or is it the large outflow of people who's creating a humanitarian crisis at the southern border, right? If we decide that outflow of people is the number one way in which Guatemala and Honduras present themselves in American politics, perhaps our trade policy should be aimed at boosting rural living standards. Standards as high as possible, rather than dumping our products on them, right? And so, I think you just see in a lot of ways that even though this is both like a big deal in American politics, that people on on both sides are like freaking out about different aspects of it, and that Trump in particular is constantly elevating its salience of. You don't see a like a whole of government effort, right? You don't see them like call the head of every single agency and come to me with two ideas that would help improve living standards in rural Central America, right? Some of them might say, sorry, boss, like I did everything I can and I've got nothing. But a bunch of them would come up with something, right? If you said this is the most important thing about Central America is we want people to have good lives where they are. Like, you could do stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I I'm, I lied, apparently. Like, I do. I, I just want to do a little bit to connect the dots because I think it's very easy, especially in the context of migration, where literally the law draws a really sharp distinction between economic migration and, you know, forced refugees to think about it as like, oh, people are fleeing because of poverty or because of crime. And it's hard to imagine how corruption, which seems like a high-level problem, would necessarily have an effect on someone's decision to leave a country. And I think what ties all this together is that it's a matter of governance, right? Like the if the issue in Guatemala isn't just that people are in incredibly dire economic straits because of coffee prices but that they do not have confidence in their government's ability or interest to deliver them the help that they need or like they have they do not believe that the government is interested in helping them survive they are much more likely to leave than if they're not doing super well but the government is actually making an effort and so this in the context of Guatemala ties into you know racial politics with the fact that the highlands that are hardest hit are mostly indigenous it ties into the kind of anti-corruption stuff that the current Guatemalan president has rolled back. In Honduras, it ties into uh, corruption with local gangs. We do have kind of micro-neighborhood-level like neighborhood level things that can improve micro-governance. But improving governance is hard, and it takes a long time, and it can't be subject to the like, year-to-year whims of foreign aid budgets. And so— If that is the thing, you know, like if there were an interest in making sure that governments weren't just strong enough to prevent people from leaving, but were strong enough to induce them to stay, sure, you could see a, you know, an agenda around that, but it would have to be both bigger and harder than just selling a lot of corn.
3: Richard Gibson wants to know about Cincinnati chili.
4: Oh, man. But he also has an interesting question in, in the latter part. So uh, Richard Gibson— No, I want to hear
3: about the chili. Well,
4: we we can answer the chili question first. Um, please ask Darren and Jay if they like Cincinnati chili, and if so, Skyline or Gold's. Uh, Gold Star, which is the other—the West Side brand. So one of the things about Cincinnati that people may be unaware of is it is a large city. And I don't mean large population-wise, I mean large in terms of, like, mileage. And so there is the east side of Cincinnati, which is where I grew up. Um, I grew up in Madisonville, which is down the hill from Indian Hill. And for the inevitable next question, I attended Ursuline Academy in Blue Ash. And then, but then Because
2: Cincinnati is exactly the kind of place where where did you go to high school is a question that you ask total... Total totally strangers. Like, and, and then the adults. total
4: strangers will respond. And then you'll judge everything about them based on that one fact. But then the west side of Cincinnati, which when I was growing up was treated as if it was like 70,000 miles away... Um, Because w- when you are basically it, – it's a very car-heavy city. It essentially was. So west side of Cincinnati, which had – um, that's where Mount Healthy and a bunch of other neighborhoods are. The east Wait, side – Mount
3: Healthy? Yes. yes. There's, it,
4: it's, it's a, <laughs> a, a place. I don't understand why that is amusing. It's a place. I always found Mount Lookout to be much funnier as
2: long as we're talking about neighborhood it,
4: names. Beautiful neighborhood, by the way. Yeah. But oh, yeah. Uh, east side – so Skyline – and golds. Gold mm. star is the west side chili. And one of the things about Cincinnati chili is that it is served generally on top of spaghetti. So you have chili and you put it on top of spaghetti and then you cover it with the critical ingredient of like a pound of shredded cheddar cheese. And the cheese, for some reason, like that makes the whole thing. You can it's also like do it with conies. five ways or f- so yeah. that's, two that, ways. What Jane
2: is just described as a three three-way. Way. <laughs> you can add either Onions. onions or black beans and make it a four way or you yeah. can add both of those and make it a five way.
4: You can also do all of this on top of hot dogs as in conies. And so that it's kind of the coney chili concept. But the second part of his question, which I think is excuse me, excuse me,
2: I am a diehard skyline partisan, and we are not moving past
4: the Cincinnati skyline question. is clearly superior. I, it's I didn't really feel like that was oh a, no no
2: no oh, okay I thought you said the gold star was superior no, and I had no. whoa, so many whoa. questions
4: okay. no no <laughs> all right skyline. that that having been resolved, uh, more serious question: Did either live in Cincinnati at the time of the riots? If so, what were their experiences? And so I can go first. Um, so in April two thousand one, an unarmed uh, black. Man named timothy thomas was shot by police in an incident that was later found to be extremely problematic based on um, an internal police investigation but it that shooting and the response to it resulted in the largest race-based rioting since the la riots of 1992 Um, and when i would i was in eighth grade at the time Uh, i graduated from eighth grade probably june 2001 and this would have taken place april 2001 And what I remember of it is my dad worked downtown at the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County, um, one of the finest libraries in America. And there was a curfew set up. And the curfew extended throughout this because we lived within city bounds. And it meant that my dad came home from work early, but everyone came home from work early that day. Mm. And being under a curfew is a very strange experience um in you know i don't know how many listeners have ever been in a city environment or in a place in which a curfew is put under place either because of a natural disaster or some other kind of emergency but it is a strange and very like experience just to like Everyone is at home and no one's happy about it and no one really quite knows what to do. But one of the other pieces to this is that the response after uh, the riots was a massive economic boycott of downtown Cincinnati, which I remember being a part of in a sense because, um, you know, I was a freshman in high school and I had a friend who was doing uh, an Indian classical dance performance downtown at the Aronoff Center Um and they, she got protesters. And the protesters, which I found interesting, were using quotes from Mahatma Gandhi to argue that she, who again, being 14, should not be doing this dance performance because Gandhi would not have wanted this to be taking place. Which even at the time, being myself 14, I said, that's awkward. But it, it's interesting now because I think that what happened in Cincinnati would have been much worse in the social media era because i went back and looked at the the case and the exact details of the case which i was unaware of at the time because you know i was a child mm-hmm. um you know the police officer in was tried for negligent homicide in september 2001 um he was eventually acquitted but um An internal police investigation found that the police officer in the case lied in his incident report, had not followed department firearm procedures, and did not give the teenager, uh, Timothy Thomas, enough time to respond to the order. And the uh, attempted arrest that resulted in the shooting was over a series of— like a like, lot, of, lot of traffic citations. A lot of unpaid traffic. Tickets. Like he had been pulled over eleven times by six white officers and four black officers. And they had he had been cited for twenty-one violations, all of them for uh not driving with a seatbelt or driving without a license. And so they attempted to arrest him, uh he was nineteen at the time. Um and you know, for the nonviolent 14 nonviolent misdemeanor counts and he was pursued for 10 minutes by nine officers and then he rounded a corner allegedly surprised the officer who shot who then shot him in the chest and um the office it was one of the it's, uh, one another case in which what the police officer said at the time was basically he thought he was reaching for a weapon there was no weapon uh what people now think is that he had been trying to pull up his pants. Okay. Um, but it, it was just one of those instances where I think that what happened in Cincinnati seems to have been largely forgotten. For I mean, basically, it happened, you know, April 2001, and then, you, you know, everything became overshadowed, I think, in contemporary politics by 9-11. Yeah. But my memories of it were— very stark and it was a very scary time but it it was it's interesting how little we seem to have learned from that that we could have known you know for 13 14 years later
2: so i think of the riots as a less disruptive thing partly because where i was going to school it was it was extremely unusual to go downtown anyway Cincinnati is a very segregated city. It's not just east side, west side. It's also like a lot of racial segregation. And so the fact that I was going down to the University of Cincinnati every weekend for acting classes was like seen as somehow weird. Like there was definitely like, oh, no one I think explicitly said that I wasn't safe, but it was definitely an unusual thing. And so, you know, I was. I was supposed to be ushering for a theater production uh, one of the nights of the curfew, and so like that was kind of my you know I didn't actually have the opportunity to to go into the city at all. Um, but looking back on it, it actually seems less relevant as a disruption from you know what people thought of downtown Cincinnati or over the Rhine, you know, which kind of was the synecdoche when we were growing up for like the dangerous parts of town, which is very 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 strange now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Like it seems less it seems more like a turning point even because what Cincinnati's police department and city government did after the riots has become a touchstone in certain circles for like what good police reform looks like. And I know that our colleague, well, my former colleague, Jane's colleague and our fellow former Cincinnatian Herman Lopez uh, certainly has some opinions about that, but like it's kind of become accepted among racial justice activists of a certain stripe that like this is what it looks like to take your problems seriously and fix them, and that I think cleared the way for the. Uh, fact that a lot of the people who I went to school with who would never dream of setting foot in Over the Rhine are now living in Over the Rhine or going out in Over the Rhine on weekends because it's become the kind of ground zero of gentrification in the city in a very interesting reversal from the kind of intra-segregation that pervaded Cincinnati at the time, but one that I think was kind of enabled by the idea that, like, the city is good now.
4: Right, exactly, and you see that on with
3: spaghetti, just still seems weird. It's and gross. delicious. It's delicious. It's
4: Matt. delicious, and I don't understand, like in terms of the strange things that people eat in different localities. Mm-hmm. Skyline is like far away. I mean, it's not Rocky Mountain oysters. It's far and away, like in in non offensive and delicious.
3: I there. mean, it doesn't offend me. It's just I, it's it's anyway. There's a lot of Cincinnatians at Vox.com. There are. That is the that is the takeaway here. Yes. Correct. Um, a city
4: can, can, named can, 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 a city can. named for a general who didn't want a general anymore and just gave up and went back to farming, which I I, I acknowledge.
3: Here, wait. I, I want to field this question about small dollar donations. That is I a question. I think question. it's tricky. James Wilson wants to know: Is relying on small dollar donations instead of corporate money the one weird trick that could help Democrats win more elections? Uh, blah 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 blah. Um, maybe, but I, I think it's worth being a little bit skeptical right? Because the problem with small dollar donations is that they are expressive rather than transactional, right? It's something people like about them. There is no sense that you gave $5 to AOC because like you're hoping she's going to write a tax break for your company. But the risk of it is that it becomes a, it's a fandom type thing, right? You take your politician who you like best, who speaks most clearly to you, and you give money to that person. Uh, the problem is, is that a politician who really, truly speaks to you as someone who's willing to give money, it means like you are an incredibly geared up ideologue, right? And you need politicians ultimately to like win tough races, right? right? A- and it's no knock on AOC or Ayanna Pressley. Like their districts are not tough. And it is good and appropriate for them to not be focused on what you need to do to win tough races because what you need to do to win tough races can be very, very limiting, right? But if you want to govern, you do need to win some tough races. And the candidates in those tough races need money. If all those candidates have is transactional money, That's bad and it hurts them because, like, there's no votes to be gained in, like, kowtowing to the cable company. Uh, But the cable company will give money to any promising challenger anywhere. They could use that small-dollar ideological money. But are they going to get it? Right? Like, are you going to swallow your own pride and say, you know what? Like probably to run and win in South Carolina, it makes sense to take a position on abortion that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. That to run and win in Montana, it makes sense to distance yourselves from Black Lives Matter in a way that I'm not personally comfortable with. And yet I'm gonna give that person $5, $10. Because why should you give money to someone who's not speaking to you? But that's what you need, right? So now the solution to this ultimately Is for the politics superstars in the safe seats, right? The AOCs and the Anna Presleys and stuff like that to have um, groups that they run or affiliate with, right? And that they front for and that they raise money for in a fandom kind of way, but then they need to give a little bit more strategically right, to people who are in some sense allied with them, but also are going to be separate. Still, though, the personal association with the base politicians can be tricky. Uh, So anyway, long story short, it's like it's a little bit harder, I think, than it is because I don't see people necessarily opening their wallets for candidates who are making the, like, frankly, distasteful compromises that are involved in winning tough races. And Sometimes people get utopian about this, right? Like I always call it like like pundit's fallacy, right? Where people will be like, oh, to win the election, like they just need to adopt the views that, that I think are right. And I just think that's really wrong. It's like to win elections, what you often need to do in America is take incorrect, inhumane, slightly horrifying positions on issues that involve completely scanting the interests of disempowered minority groups. And it's not. But it's the right thing to do, right? Like it would not have been constructive to just lose every election in history because you like took a stand on principle. Like politics, Max Weber, it's a vocation. It's like a weird tough kind of shitty vocation and like you're going it, to it's it's hard and like I I think it's hard to know right if what you want to do is just give money to good people you're going to lose all the time
4: I also think that there there's something else to be said because a lot of this is coming um with the rise of like Act blue and other means by which for giving these donations, and also with kind of the growing nationalization of local politics, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is why I see people, you know, when you talk about AOC, for example, you get like people are like, oh, well, you know, she's doomed in her next election. I'm like, she's absolutely 100% not. She's very she's, solid. She's the apps. I don't know what the exact opposite of doomed would be, um, but is, she is the opposite of that. And I think that that's something, you know, people are national political figures. Are still not answerable nationally. Mm-hmm. They are answerable locally. So there are a host of politicians in which you're thinking, like, this guy says incredibly stupid things all the time mm-hmm. and has become, you know, kind of a national laughing stock for doing so. But then when they win their next election, it is because, national importance and national small dollar donations do not change the fact that Steve King's district is incredibly conservative and the people in Steve King's district were like, well, you know, this J.D. Schulton guy seems nice, but Steve King has, you know, really stood up for our particular interests and all we care about are these particular interests. Sure, we find him embarrassing, which is why he won by, like, a very small margin in comparison to previous elections, but again, the nationalization of politics does not nationalize House and Senate races inherently.
2: Uh, Matt's reference to AOC's and Iona Presley's of the world reminded me of a question that somehow did not make it onto our list, and that therefore I cannot reproduce verbatim. But it was a question about rules of pluralization, either with the implication that we did not in fact know them, or that there was an internal logic to how the weeds uses plurals mm. that does not comport with the general English language. And the second one of those is correct, um, because this started as a thing that some of uh, my—one of my very dear friends did kind of for comic relief. I have adopted it. I have gotten Jane to adopt it. I'm clearly still working on Matt, but— by the same token by which, you know, in some cases you will pluralize the first word in a compound noun, like when the second word is an adjective, like attorneys general or teaspoonsful. when referring to one person as synecdoche for an abstract, like people like that person, it is amusing to imagine that their surname is the adjective and therefore to go like Ayanna's Presley. Or, I mean, if you're really committed to the bit, A is O.C. Yes. Um, And commitment to the bit is what we are all about here at The Weeds. And so, like, I know that this is something I have gotten occasional, like, you know that that's not actually how plurals work. Yes, I do know that that's not actually how plurals work. Uh, I will fight my linguistic tics to, you know, fight for my linguistic tics. It's true. uh, To the death. It's, you know, I'm. I'm a podcaster and I get to determine how I talk. But like, if it really pisses you off that much, you can uh, stop listening to the podcast. The
3: show is a form of entertainment. And sometimes it's good to have kind of inside jokes among the hosts and the audience. It makes us legible to each other. It does. You know. Yes.
2: And while definitely I uh, grinned and mock pounded the table when Matt inevitably brought up Max Weber, like man does not live by Max Weber references alone. It's true. Max's Weber. Max's I guess. yes. Max's Weber reference.
3: Maxen Weber. And, uh, <laughs> something like that. I don't know German. I can tell. Should we do any more questions?
4: Um I actually I have uh, I, I have one which it sounds like it is coming from someone who is younger, and this is actually actually a excellent question for the, the our Twitter era. Sheldon Goodwin asks, I just started a new job where I have to have a public presence on social media. I already have personal social media accounts. I am unsure how to balance my private life and my my professional life. My question, how do you deal with being a public figure while maintaining some privacy? How do you decide what to share about your personal life and what to keep private? Welcome to one of the great challenges of my life.
2: Yeah, I wonder if the answers to this question would be different if you asked our spouses.
4: Oh, (laughs) significant.
2: I think that, I mean, the bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, is if you have separate private and professional social media accounts, this is actually much easier. Yes. Because you get two levels of judgment. The first level of judgment is, do I share this? And the second level of judgment is, to which channel do I share this? So you do have a little bit of room to, like. Pick and choose some, you know, things that make you seem like a real person but that aren't too revealing to add to a professional account to make it seem human uh, without actually divulging anything about your personal life that might be embarrassing to you to look back on.
4: I also think – so I there is this ongoing – if you follow me on Twitter, which I highly recommend, I'm very entertaining – um, I came into journalism through. I, people talk about like coming in through like the back door or the side door. I feel as if I like repelled into a window and have just refused to leave um, because I started out in sports writing. Um, I covered sports. Uh, Stick to sports. I, I tried. Um, Lord knows. But you know, while I was a speechwriter during the day, I was covering the NFL and college football uh, for our beloved SB Nation at night. And so there are a lot of people on the internet who know me. From from sports times or just from, like, the sports internet and who have seen me transition into doing what I do now, which is journalism. And so I think one of the challenges is that there are people who, in because of social media, they believe that they know you extremely well and they know you sort of, but they know social media you. They might know, like, what you look like and they know like things, you know, for instance, my deep abiding hate for the worst general in the Civil War, George McClellan, and former Governor of New Jersey. People know that I have strong feelings on those particular issues. But people do not know me that well, actually. And so um for instance, I have Go Blue in my Twitter bio. And the number bias. Yeah, the number of people who apparently are new to existence who believe that I am rooting for the Democratic Party, like a sports team, which one would be a quixotic effort and very depressing to do, but also not a thing that I anyone would do has been fascinating because I realized once again that like you think when you tweet something or you say something on social media, you are going with the understanding that this will make sense to the people following me. But then at a certain point when you get over a certain number of followers, I would say nothing you tweet will make sense to about 20% of them. And at a certain point, you just kind of have to give up I'll give up on that.
3: Let me get get deep on this, okay, right? yes, okay. I'm just like not personally a big believer in like privacy. I'm not a private person. um so I used to have like no real boundaries in my social media conduct, and I even kind of i mean, I would sort of say to myself that it was almost like, look like the 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 public mat is the real mat. Right. Who's like there out in public. And right.
2: Constituted who, through praxis. Yes. yes. And who
3: is known to many, many more people. And, you know, it's like like, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne is the disguise. Right. Um, who you interact with on, on an everyday basis. But then like my life changed. Right. And I, and I met a young woman and we got married and, and we have a child. And she is not an online person at all. Right. And, you know, that's then been a change because it's really it's not my disposition to say that things need to be kept private, but it's her preference. Right. But you have to you know, that's like part of marriage is you have to do what like other people want and accommodate them. And so that's been a real change for me. And I think not something that I always necessarily like do correctly. Even here, it's a tough one because I'm now talking about yeah. Kate and I bet she wouldn't want me to be um, right. So right. so so I will stop right. Um, but then you get the sort of further change where, as a parent, you spend a lot of your IRL socializing time in situations that are not necessarily like your self constructed friend group, but are kind of handed down to you by the exigencies of children's school and things like that. And to me, there's something really nice about the elective affinities of. Social media, right? Where it's like, I choose who I follow on right. Twitter and I don't choose who my son's classmates' parents might happen to be who I chit-chat with at right. drop-off. Um, where it's like, you know, I, I I like to chit-chat with with the people I quote unquote know right. uh, out there out there on the internet. Um, but in advice terms, like it's smarter to start, I think, with like a good assumption of privacy. In this day and age and like try to like keep it clean and keep your personal life off the sorts of public accounts because it is always easier to go the other direction, right? Right. Like if you make a calculated strategic decision that there's something you want to start talking about in public, like nothing is stopping you from doing that. Whereas it's really hard to unring the bell because you will get asked questions, things you have said previously in public will get brought up. Right. And then, I mean, you can ignore them if you want, but that's challenging.
2: Right. You can ignore them, but you can't keep them off Google. Right. I think that if you're concerned, and I I don't want to take lightly the concern that like even a professional social media feed is still supposed to be engaging, it's supposed to sound like it comes from a person, it's supposed to be like a personal brand, having enthusiasms or hobbies is a pretty easy, like way to impose some bright line rules yeah. so that you're not necessarily it's you are you don't have to worry about like am I disclosing too much it's just is this one of the elements of myself that I disclose publicly or isn't it right which like makes those snap judgments a lot easier to make the other thing I would say is especially on Twitter it's very easy to delete tweets like if you're not a politician it's actually not that hard to go back like a couple days later if you find yourself thinking about something and delete it and like maybe someone will DM you about it because they liked the tweet and they're sad it's gone but or they've taken. no one cares.
4: Sometimes people do this thing where they take a screenshot yeah, and they're but, just like but you said this once I and mean, you're like
2: honestly I feel like that's more likely to happen to us as people who speak
4: who like talk on the internet for a right. living
2: than it is to happen to normal people. It's true.
4: But I, I also um, I generally do not delete tweets because I have been on Twitter for it's a oh, mm, more than 11 years now. And sometimes I I think it is interesting as a person experiencing the internet to have experienced the internet in public, and so it's fascinating. You know, if you go back to the early days of my Twitter feed, it's basically I just talk about Michigan football all the time, mm. and now I only talk about Michigan football some of the time. But it, it, it's fascinating because only
3: during football season,
4: generally. But it is interesting because I think that that's been something you've seen as Twitter and these social media platforms have developed. If you, you know, if you were on Twitter in the early days, it was basically just like people telling you what they had for lunch. Yeah, they
3: were well, they were all personal feeds,
4: it was all personal feeds, like the idea of having. Having a professional constructed Twitter feed was like a new, like a people. Why would you have that? What was that about? And so. I think that Twitter, like the f- how Twitter flattens interaction so that you feel like you could just talk to anyone. I quite like that. And if people are like, but you time in 2014, you said this thing. And I'm like, yes, in 2014, I said this thing. I was also, you know, not married. And a lot of other things in my life were very different in 2014. But the, so I old, days of, the that...
3: old days of personal Twitter, I actually thought were kind of great. Yeah. Like, you could
4: Twitter
2: like- Twitter used to be fun. No one is going to believe you when you say this. Right. But, like Twitter used to be a lot of fun. But But yeah. I mean, also
3: it was useful, right? It's like, you know, if you, might have like gone to see a movie or something with some friends and then some of the people who went to the movie might like go to a bar and get a drink afterwards and you could tweet that you were there and if there was somebody else who was like you know a friend of yours not like a total stranger like might be like oh people are there and go meet up and i now think as like a grown-up right that it can be like Laborious to like make plans with other moms and dads to go do things. But like, if you happen to be at such and such a playground, to be able to broadcast that fact to other people who you know, so that if they're considering, well, we could go to Stead Park or we could go to, you know, Harrison Playground, like go to the one where somebody I know is. Right. right? And it was, it was actually a good idea. And it's become, uh, sort of eroded away by by performative social media. Because it's not just public-private, right? It's like the difference between, like, trying to convey accurate information about the situation versus trying to do a public performance of your personality.
4: Yes, where you you realize that you're encountering the kabuki theater version of someone, uh, which has been fascinating when you meet people off of Twitter and you're like, that is not what I expected. You are definitely... But for understandable reasons that people differentiate their personalities into yeah. Twitter and not Twitter. But and
3: like even like on a private Instagram, like nobody ever has like a disappointing meal on vacation.
2: <laughs> I was being impugned very directly here. <laughs> You're
3: not impugned, it just seems <laughs> like that. No, no, like no, a no, 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 vacation. no. It's true. <laughs> it's
2: it's true. It's true. Um and yeah, I mean the the pressures of I like essays have been written by people who are more attuned to these things than we are about what the private performance of life for one's peers means. Um, anyway, the everyone on The Weeds is exactly the same as we sound on the podcast in real life. We are all wonderful, charming people. You should follow us on Twitter. You should join The Weeds Facebook group. Uh, I think that we have been asked pretty much anything over the course of this. We have. And might want to wrap up
3: and that's a wrap um, thank you all for listening uh, we always you know thanks especially to the people who send in questions I always love doing these shows uh, we will do more perhaps we should do them more frequently and then make the episode shorter uh, I think that sounds good that, that's that might be a good, good idea, idea. Um, uh, but you know uh, w- with that thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld and uh, the Weeds will be back soon